What Divines Us. My name is Rabbi Abram Goodstein. And I'm Reverend Matthew Schultz. <laughs> and we have a, we actually have a special episode. We have an awesome uh, guest host today. Um, we have Joel here. And I'm going to let kind of Joel talk a little bit about what he's doing. But Joel is also a podcast host as well. And a podcast called The Anchored City. Uh, so we're both, we're all three of us Anchorage-based podcasters. And we started a club. It's the first meeting. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, So, so welcome. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Um, Yeah, my name is Joel Kiegenfeld. I'm a pastor here in Anchorage. So, the church that I pastor is just a tiny little group of people, like 30 folks. Um, That's mostly community led. So, we kind of take seriously that everybody kind of brings something to the service. Um, So, I'm the pastor for that for Reclaim. And then, yeah, I host a podcast called The Anchored City that's tied to the Anchorage Urban Training Collaborative. Um, which is an organization that um, a friend of mine and I run that supports um, social services providers and pastors in their spiritual lives to help them do more sustainable work in the city. Wow, that's that's a lot, Joel. It's <laughs> <laughs> a few things. Can we unpack that a little sure. bit? Sure. Yeah. Uh, so you, it's uh, UTC. It's the Urban Training Center. Urban Training Collaborative. Co- yep. Collaborative. Yeah, yeah. And why? What? Uh, what really inspired you to create something called the Urban uh, Training Collaborative? Yeah. So it's kind of a clunky name, but it's because we're connected with a larger training collaborative uh, network. Um, that is functional around the world called Street Psalms. Um, But for Jessica and I, personally, what caused us to do it is we were in direct service work for years, faith-based direct service work. I'm sorry, I'm just going to stop you. Yeah. Direct service work. Yeah, so we worked... unpack that. Yeah, sure. (laughs) Um, Like... Other social workers would sometimes call it line service, or but we were working directly with, with folks um, in our program. So we weren't like administering the program, even though we were, because it was a small organization, but we were working directly with the folks that we were serving. And in that capacity, it was a place called Parachutes, right. which was and a drop-in yes, center. Parachutes is known in yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. So it was a drop-in center for high-risk and street-involved youth in Anchorage. So our experience was that for both of us, um, both of us worked there for over a decade, and the idea, somewhere along the line, we both had breakdowns, and we have discovered that not just for ourselves, but for those that we know that are in that type of work, so pastoring is kind of a direct service thing. You can talk about it as like human helping fields, those type of things. Um, the more you're sort of able to take care of yourself on a spiritual level, the more sustainable you are in the work. So that's yeah. really where the idea came from. So we talk about doing two things, helping people love their city and seek its peace and Peace is this idea of shalom, and we think that the folks that are... I know about shalom. Yeah, you do. <laughs> so I'm preaching to the choir, right? Um, but the folks that are, that are most actively pursuing that on a daily basis are those that are, are, are pastoring and those type of work or doing social services work that are trying to change the city to be more the way it's supposed to be. So, Okay, Joel, I got a lot more to unpack there. <laughs> So your, I guess you, the mission that you described here is is lifting people up in a spiritual way. Sure. And you said it's done in, in two, in two ways. Our mission talks about two things: loving the city and seeking its peace. Loving the city and seeking its peace. Yeah. So loving the city is just the, the place that you live in, mm-hmm. and seeking its peace is trying to make it a better place. Yeah. So we we use a definition of shalom that is it's the way everything's supposed to be for all people. And you have a whole episode on your podcast. Yeah. About shalom. Yeah. Yeah. And we yeah. talk about it off and on. Yeah. It's sort of the underpinning. Um, so this idea of how does the city be can become, yeah, kind of the ideal way where everybody can flourish, everybody that's part of the city, um, and then loving the city kind of comes out of this idea that mostly in Western culture and in particular in the U.S., like the ideal is always this idea of like this rural agrarian. Like, that's the good life. Everyone right, wants to right. move out to the country and be a gentleman farmer or whatever. Um, so the city is often looked at as just like a collection of problems or issues. 
Um, and especially here in Anchorage, where many folks, not everybody obviously, comes from somewhere else, the idea of loving the city sometimes, it's just a place where you live or it's a place that you sleep while you're waiting to go to like real Alaska or whatever, mm-hmm. um, or we want to keep it as a small town. And we often don't address it as it's, it, it's an urban place um, with all the, the good and the bad with that. So our podcast is really about that idea of loving the city and seeking its peace. How do we help people hear from different voices in the city and learn some of the history and begin to kind of love the place that they're in? That's so fascinating because you've got no problem discussing areas where our city has struggled, especially when it comes to substance abuse. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have a real historical problem of that in our city. Uh, and so how do you balance that sort of like the love our city, but also like people in our city have struggled? Yeah, I mean, last season we were focused on problems facing Anchorage, and we kind of pulled that from some research I did while I was doing some schooling and and then from asking other folks, and that's where some of the stuff like substance abuse and those type of things showed up in the episodes. Um, and But part of the reason that we're doing kind of looking where things are going to be this season, we're looking for where places are, um, things are becoming the way they are supposed to be, like kind of like rays of hope or, you know, encouraging spots. And part of it was to balance that out, like to do another whole season of like, here's problems facing the city seemed really depressing. So like <laughs> looking for where like things are more the way that they're supposed to be seems yeah. like a better way to balance out. And it felt more encouraging to me too. Oh, for sure. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Wow. That's, that seems like a lot of work. <laughs> but I, 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 I mean, like, so we're talking about a couple of things here, not just... <clears throat> your podcast, but also, you know, the work you've done as, as a pastor and serving ministry. And it's so fascinating that, that your takeaway with, with helping, like, at-risk youth is to help improve the city that these at-risk youth are in. And that's sort of their, their spiritual work. And I just don't think other would actually go that direction when you would say spiritual work. And I find that so fascinating. So how did you come to that conclusion that that's, that's where a person can really do meaningful spiritual work? Oh, that, that's a good observation. So we started Parachutes, it's getting to be almost 20 years ago. The idea was a little bit older than that. I think when we started, I had this idea that I had all this knowledge to bring to these, these youth um, and discovered very quickly that I didn't. Like there were things I could share with them, um, of course, but they had just as much to teach me. And I think the thing that opened my eyes was I grew up in a really evangelical context where, like, individual person, I mean, it's very Western too, right? Individual person, individual salvation, individual everything. What is, um, so, being Jewish, yeah. uh, individual salvation, no idea what that means. This idea that it, the to be saved is to get your, your personal relationship right with God, um. and that's the thing. Um, and there was definitely part of that in the early years of parachutes, but I think the the thing, thing that we figured out real quickly is what we were actually doing was building a community. So um, there's a, a quote from a author, Miroslav Volf. He's talking about a story that's in both of our traditions. Um, the the Cain and Abel, the first murder. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I know. yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, everybody's favorite feel-good sermon, yeah. right? <laughs> but he talks about that what you learn in that story as God's questioning um, Cain at the end is that community is sharing a common social space and taking responsibility for each other. And that became something that was driving what we were doing in parachutes, but I think also was drawing us into this is our community here in this drop-in space and with these youth that we're, we're in community with, but also there's a larger community around that of the city and how do we then start thinking about how do we share this space and take responsibility for each other as well. So that communal idea was sort of birthed in that experience of, of how do we live day-to-day um, with the youth that we are serving. 
And so you, you were working on like maybe like projects to help the city or what what was sort of like at that point in time we weren't and we were just mostly working on that um, sort of community and that was probably enough at that point in time. Um, but I think as we took a step back from that and thought about what was next for us, um, there was still this desire to see the city the way that um, yeah the way that it would embrace kind of what all people in a way and so we, we leave it sort of intentionally vague I mean we could say things like God's dream for the city but then you end up with lots of people going I don't really care what God's dream is <laughs> for the city right depending on what their background is so but it, it was that same idea it was just kind of taking that idea to the next step and I think the longer we spent um, trying to individually um, be in community with the youth that we were serving you start to see the systemic issues that are affecting um, people that are on the margins. Yeah. So that was one of the things as well. Is it, I think it began to open our eyes and draw us into that even further. I mean, even simple things like, hey, the bus routes are all going to change. Um, and our, you know, most of our youth either walked or biked or took the bus. So that becomes an issue for us. So like, it's not something that was normally part of my tradition. In my tradition, we're told not to be political um, for any reason. I know you guys have talked about this on your show already. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. In my tradition, it's like, don't, don't talk about that at all. But that was one of the first things that sort of drew us into more of a political um, engagement in that, like, hey, if you cut this service, this really affects right. these youth that we know, and they can't access either our service or somebody else's service. So, well, you you, you brought up Miroslav Volf before, and yeah. When you think of yeah. exclusion and embrace, and so much of the the root cause of so many of the problems in our society is that people are intentionally targeted for exclusion, and you can't really just shelter the individual from that. We have to address the system that's targeting them. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the fastest way to form community, I mean, um, Father Boyle talks about this too, but like, um, or it's not him, um, Richard Rohr actually, the fastest way to form community is just decide who you're against. Right. Yeah, <laughs> like, for sure. So that's the danger of it, right, is that is that exclusion piece of just figure out who you're against. Yeah. Um, and the type of community that we're trying to foster is more about who's included Mm-hmm. Um, and how do you mm-hmm. include as many people as possible? But you're right. There is this. The, there are these places where people are intentionally targeted um, because they either don't have the voice or they don't have the ability to fight back or they're seen as not important or it's a service that's not valued by the majority or whatever it is. Yeah, yeah I was hoping maybe uh, Matt and I and also, of course, Joel, talk a little bit about like, what makes an inclusive community? Like, What's, what's like the values that, that draws it, if you will? Mm-hmm defines it. I know because you're, yeah, you, you spent a lot of time talking about community and your podcast and sort of what I've seen you work with. And so I think it's fascinating because, you know, it's such a big word. Um, and, uh, but something I think about all the time and like, like personally for me, I think a component of community is a shared experience. Like every person in that community has a shared experience. That's a, that's a bonding mm-hmm. environment right there. Um, so for me, that's one of the, like, the, the values that I really, uh, I really love about kind of developing a sense of community in a place. Uh, but, you know, some places don't have that sense of community, even though they're trying. Mm-hmm. And some places, I think, do it automatically without even realizing it. And so it's interesting because, like, I, I think that it's always been – it's not something we all talk a lot about. Uh, but I think a lot, us, us clergy, I think, are always trying to create a sense of community um, in, that, in where we live, where we are. And I think for me, I'm always trying to do a better job at it. Right? I feel like I can always accomplish more, um, or I'm always learning more about how communities come together. But I know I feel like Joel, you're a bit of an expert on this. Um, you know, yeah, with, I'm an expert <laughs> <laughs> with your podcast. But yes, anyways, Matt, you got any thoughts? 
on inclusion in particular in communities, I think back on my own life and see how I used to exclude people unwittingly. And sometimes it was wittingly, I suppose. And then over time, I've become more inclusive. But of course, uh, I, I, I figure that's a, it's a snapshot in time. So I think the same is probably true of communities that at the moment... I think my church that I serve is quite inclusive compared to how it used to be. Mm -hmm. But I wonder if 10 years from now we're going to look back on it and say, oh my goodness, we were accidentally doing A, B, and C. That was just screening people out. And we didn't even know that they came to visit us one week and took a look at the leadership board and saw the, you know, the demographic makeup. And we're like, oh, this is a church for people that look like that. Right. Um, so along that way, I think what we can be hoping for is an inclusiveness trajectory, if nothing else. You know, you might not be there yet, <laughs> right. but we're... I feel like you're never there, though, right? Exactly, like, right, 10 yeah. years, you're kind of there, so that would happen 10 years ago. Right, and, and so within the Presbyterian system, there's the the, the goal or the, the requirement. I don't have to look at how it's phrased, but our leadership is supposed to be made up of a similar percentage to what the congregation is. So if your congregation is 50-50 men and women, then so should your leadership board. That's that's what you're aiming for, representative of what it is. What that doesn't address is why is your congregation the makeup that it is? Right. And right. so how, how do we address that in a way that's uh, honoring the Imago Dei within your community, right? And saying God's got all these people here in one area. How do we honor that without making it seem like we're going to say, oh, we're going to make black people our target this week and try to bring more black people into our church because that feels disingenuous and its own form of racial profiling, for lack of a better phrase, you know? So how do you, how do you reach out for inclusivity, whether it's based on uh, race or gender or sexual orientation or you name it, without tokenizing people. Mm -hmm. I don't have that answer, but uh, but I'll have it by next time we record. Or in 10 years. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> a few more, few more cycles in 10 years. Yeah. 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 What are the, Matt, like, I mean, what if like your board was organized the way that you, you were hoping the community should be instead of the way they're representing? That's a good idea. Of course, you get into some uh, practical issues. Of, it's hard enough to get people to serve on a board yeah. at all, let alone saying, all right, now we're going to narrow the parameters even more. We might end up with no leadership board. <laughs> Yeah, those, and, and those of you who are not quite sure what a board is for for like a you know a house of worship, essentially they are the lay leadership of um, of that place. I joke that you know we've got thirteen board members at my community, so I've got thirteen bosses, right? They're my bosses, um, and uh, I, I work at the behest of, of them. Is the idea of of a board, and so many many religious communities are organized in this way. Uh, they have different names. We call ours the Board of Trustees. We call ours Elders. Right. <laughs> but you don't have to be old to do it. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> Actually, we try, yeah, you, you don't. You, you want a board that has some younger members mm -hmm. have that perspective, yeah. which like, yeah, exactly. Um, but they are also sort of the linchpin of this community that we're discussing, right? Like, they're the ones that care a lot, the ones that probably care the most. Mm -hmm. uh, and what, what, I, what keeps me up at night is burnout, right? I do not want any, any yeah. like, uh, volunteer or, or, or lay leader of my community that loves, that's, that's full of faith and that loves um, to feel that they're being burned out. And so that's something that I'm always 
That's what I'm kind of nervous about. I, I imagine in 10 years from now, that's all looking back at me. Oh no! Like yeah. I did these things that made burnout happen in a way that I'm not. I'm not thrilled about. Mm-hmm. All right, and now we're going to move into religious toolbox, and Joel's going to stick around and offer his own great commentary to talk about it. Yeah. Um, and that's going to introduce our religious toolbox. Well, sure. And remember, the point of religious toolbox is to provide listeners a tool to have conversations with others around them. Uh, you know, not just clergy speaking to other clergy, but how can you talk to your friend or your neighbor or your coworker um, about certain issues? And as I do with my home repairs, I'm probably going to show up with the wrong tools today. <laughs> That's what I'm usually like. Not the sharpest tool in the shed. Exactly. <laughs> exactly right. I, I, I figured things out as I go and I figured them out poorly. Um, but I've been reading recently this concept called epistemic responsibility. Hold on. Can you say that again? Epistemic. Epic. Epi? Epistemic responsibility. Epipen. Like <laughs> sure, yeah. And uh, you can get into the etymology of that word, but I don't know it. Okay. Um, uh, so essentially, one of the main factors involved in this concept is we have the responsibility to know what we know. It's not just other people pouring facts into our head, but we make a choice to allow certain things into our head. And so if you are one of the people out there who during these COVID times decides I'm going to take the horse medication to prevent myself from getting COVID, that is a piece of information you've allowed into your mindset, into your worldview, into your toolbox of um, information to use. Now, it's a bad idea. It's not something you should do. And so somewhere along the line, you've been misled. This whole question is, are you allowing yourself to be misled and is that an ethical shortcoming? Do we have the ethical and moral responsibility to have true facts only? How do we decide what those are? Um, and where does that responsibility lie? Does that responsibility lie with the person giving out the lies or with the one accepting them or both? Because there are times where we just get the wool pulled over our eyes. Should we feel guilty for that, having allowed it? So, um, in brass tacks, as we're talking to people here, in, and when I say here, I mean like in reality as opposed to me just imagining things in my head, uh, I do think there's a responsibility. And I, I find myself getting angry at the people who have been misled. I don't think I should, but that's, that's my emotion. When I see someone, when I just read the headline in the Anchors Daily News today that there are uh, animal supply stores within our city that are running out of this horse medicine. And there are horses out there. <laughs> yeah. I'm a little new to the to this to this particular problem. Well, why are our our vets and supplies for animals running out of horse medicine? So there is a kind of medicine, some chemical compound that there's anecdotal, not yet fully understood possibility that it can be one of the treatments for COVID. So it's sort of along the lines of, I would just say it's at this point, I think it's just anecdotal evidence. We don't know. And it's not, I imagine it's designed for animals that's not FDA approved. Right. I think you can, yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think you can buy it over the counter in horse medication form. And so if course, now people are out there buying and just drinking it on down. I don't know if you spread it on toast or if you mix it in with orange juice. I don't know how you take this stuff, but uh, I guess oats, right? You mix it with oats. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) that seems right. So people are out there taking... The FDA actually had to put out a statement saying, don't take this. You are not a horse. 
which tells you something about the state of intelligence in our country that people have to be reminded they're not horses. Well, I think it's fascinating because, you know, you talk a little bit about who to be angry at. <laughs> yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm not saying we have to choose someone. I'm just confessing that I'm, I'm angry about it. You know? I think, like, the way, that I, the way that I'm seeing this is that these, these individuals, they're, they're terrified, right? They're right. feeling tons of fear. Uh, and I think they're letting their fear be manipulated. Uh, they're letting their fear be hijacked by these individuals who you mentioned who are, who are sort of providing misinformation. I believe that like there's always going to be people who provide misinformation. You know, that's a, that's a tale as old as time. Right? A tale I mean, as old as time. Beauty and the Beast, huh? <laughs> Reference. There we go, yeah. Seems uh, appropriate now, for horse well, horses. Well, I have to... Well, yeah, yeah. I, just, I, I wonder, though, now that you sing a little bit of that song, how, how that affects the rights of this podcast. That's a oh, no, I'm going to have to write a check. Bleep I, I, that out, too, right? Yeah. So, yeah, uh, I no. agree. Someone's always going to be lying. Yeah. And I... I and I think on a certain initial response level, we're all prone to being fooled, right? It right. happens to everybody. Right. Right. But now we're a year into this. Uh-huh. And if you are still out there allowing yourself to accept the lie that vaccines don't work or to accept the lie that masks don't work, then you have bought into this evil of falsehood. But what if, okay, what if, Matt? That you and I, and I'm going to imagine Joel here too, um, we're raised in, with, in a way that we're provided certain tools. Mm-hmm. We know how to navigate our own feelings. We know how to navigate what other people are telling us. We know when to be skeptical and doubtful, and we know when not to be. Right? We've just we've developed those tools over time. Maybe, maybe thanks to a good childhood. Maybe thanks to experiencing some horrible things when we were younger and just mm-hmm. how to navigate it. So what if these individuals are? They don't have the same tools that we do. Right. Yeah, and that's and just, yeah. Just, I mean, they're angry. They're they're scared, uh, and they're just trying to figure it out as best they can with the tools that they have. I think that's the, absolutely the right question. I don't have the answer, but I think that describes a certain subset, and perhaps those are the ones that we <laughs> say guess, we we get it. I guess my, my issue is that if we're angry at them, they're not going to take the vaccine. Right. Oh, right. sure. Yeah, I'm not, and I'm not recommending anger as a strategy. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and I, I think there is a time to turn on your Mister Rogers switch and say we're going to speak to people who are scared with kindness and care. Mister Rogers, as in like the Mister Rogers. There's only one Mister yeah. Rogers. Except no substitutes. There's also a Captain Rogers, and that's Captain America. Oh. And honestly, there's only one Captain America because the new series with Winter Soldier and Sam as Cap, it was just no good. What? I liked it. No, so you're wrong again. Oh and we'll get into this later. <laughs> that was a wonderful journey of finding a new captain. Anyway, sorry. Yeah. Well, I do think it's interesting to, to bring up tools, and this doesn't really answer your question, unfortunately, but like one thing I've been trying to sort through for the last, like, however long this has been going on, a year, year and a half, mm-hmm. is like, I don't have the same tools as a friend of mine who works for the CDC. I just don't. Right. Like, so I have tools in another area or I've spent time studying in another area. And like that's where I think it's an interesting conversation at the moment because there's a bit of an assumption that like all of us are able to make these decisions mm-hmm. without thinking about who like who's the subject matter expert that's spent the last 30 years of their life working yeah. on this stuff. And that's where I tend to get frustrated or angry of like, why do you think you know more? 
than an epidemiologist or why do you think right. you know more than this person or that person? Like we all have, we all know more in one area than another from everybody else. But it's been this kind of crazy making assumption that we all have the same tools to figure out what to do in a pandemic. And I, I, I don't agree. Yeah. Well, so, like, that's what I've been trying to sort out. Like, what do we do with that? Like there's obviously levels of expertise and that seems mm-hmm. to be dismissed a lot of the time. Cause you recognize your limitations of understanding uh, a pandemic. And so you turn to a friend in the CDC, whereas I think a lot of people recognize their limitations and they turn to random dude on YouTube. And that's and that right there is the ethical choice. I I believe that feelings play a deep role. Oh yeah, Mm -hmm. the random dude on YouTube feels good to hear what he has to say and to believe him for some people, and that Mm -hmm. that's what they're reacting to. They're deeply emotional about the situation. Well, yeah, but but ninety percent of the sins out there feel good, (laughs) (laughs) which is not a good sermon title, but it's true. Great sermon title. I'm stealing that one. Give me, give me some royalties. From <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I agree. It feels good, but it's still wrong. But that's, but, 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 how do you navigate it though? If you're not, if you're not yeah. sure, like that feeling that those things are disparate, right? If you think this feels good and then must be right, and what, at what point do you have your come to Moses moment, right? Being around, <laughs> come to Moses moment, yeah. where it finally occurs to you, wait a second. This guy has been feeding me misinformation this whole time. Mm-hmm. How does that happen? Like, what uh, what does it take for a person to come to that conclusion finally? Oh, I wish I knew. Yeah, I don't know. I really don't. Because when they when you're speaking to someone who has turned away from every valid scientific body out there, whether it's a WHO or the CDC or the FDA or independent universities, you name it, they're saying, no, they're wrong. They're corrupt. They're wrong. They're corrupt. And so then the only people they're listening to are within that weird little bubble of non-experts, undereducated people, angry people. Uh, I don't know how to get them out of that zone. One idea I just had today was what if we, all those paywalls for newspapers that have the real facts behind them, but you have to pay for it, and then it's all the lies are free. What if we all just community crowdfunded? All the lies are free. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) All right, keep going. What if we all just crowdfunded subscriptions to legitimate news? Places and gave them to these people that are in their own little orb of lies. Um, now, is this an idea today? I don't know. Uh, yelling at them is not working. <laughs> no matter. <laughs> no matter how much I punch these people, they don't seem to like me. Yeah, yeah. So I guess for a religious toolbox, uh, this is an area where we're still we're still scratching our heads over trying to figure out. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I've got theories. I mean, I think I think one theory is to show some compassion. Oh. These individuals, right? Uh, I'm sorry, one just occurred to me oh, also. Another theory coming up. <laughs> no, no, no. This is actually helpful, though, this yeah. time. <laughs> There's another sermon title. This one might be helpful. Um, I have learned that a lot of people who are vaccine refusers in public have secretly gotten the vaccine. Oh, interesting. And Ooh. I think one of the tools to have these conversations is to remove the person from their audience of like minded people. The bubble. If you're in a bubble that is swayed by the lie and they're all watching you talk, like if it's online or in a crowd or televised or what have you, you are going to keep the party line 
because everyone's watching you. However, if it's just you and this person individually, privately, they're much more likely to say, well, you know, I've had my doubts about this too. Uh-huh. So I think private one-on-one conversations are a real tool we can utilize. Yeah, and Matt, in previous episodes, we've talked a little bit about how useful it is to tell like your racist grandpa, hey, that's racist, right? Call, yeah, call, yeah. call your own family out on sort of their shenanigans is very valuable mm-hmm. for lots of people. Um, and maybe this is another opportunity for that, right? Mm-hmm. You know, if your own family member is part of a, a bubble that is unhealthy, that it's an opportunity to say, to get them one-on-one and say, I feel like maybe we could do this in a different way. Right, right. But, <laughs> but <laughs> either way, <laughs> solutions are, uh, are minimal for this particular problem. Yeah. All right. Well, any other thoughts for our religious toolbox? It's interesting that it shows up in religious toolbox to me on some level in that obviously pastors as leaders or, or rabbis as leaders of their congregation, people are looking for, for their position on it. And it's been interesting for me to watch like how much um, folks over the last year and a half have really wanted their leaders to just echo their sort of initial response to the problem. Yeah. And there's a big part of me that that feels like, and you were saying before, like one of the things I think I've learned by going through education is how little I know about, mm-hmm. like almost everything pretty much, <laughs> like really. So it feels a little weird actually for me still as a pastor, like what do you what do you think about the vaccine? Well, that doesn't even almost feel like my job. And I don't mean that in a dismissive way of like I shouldn't yeah. speak about it, but it's like there are other people who are actual experts on this right. and that feels like their job. And that's where I think. It's been interesting for me to watch that and and see friends who felt like really pressured and torn inside their inside their communities because it was like whichever way they go, people are going to be really upset because they're expecting their leader to sort of echo their thoughts. And I think that's an interesting. It's been fascinating and sad all at the same time. Yeah, us rabbis, we got a saying: it's uh, it's to, to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. Yeah, uh, and so that's something that I you know. I'm working more on figuring out how to do, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. It's not an easy job description. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah. also remember throughout the Bible that uh, those prophets that afflicted the comfortable frequently wound up dead. <laughs> so <laughs> so be real careful with who you're afflicting there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. There's a risk involved. Yeah. Um, okay, well, that's our, that's our religious toolbox. Uh, we're going to move into pop theology. This is something that Matt has wanted to do for a long time. I kept pushing back on it a bit, but Matt finally gets his day of, of pop theology. And uh, so, Matt, you want to introduce what we're about to do? Well, it's just, it's very simple. I just think there are several shows or bands or songs or movies that I feel I really love, and that's a lot of things, but I love them from the perspective of a person of faith. I love them from the perspective of a pastor. Um, Also bear in mind, my undergraduate degree is in art, so I kind of have fussy standards for artistic integrity. I'm sure I knew that, Matt. Art is your undergraduate degree? Seriously? You didn't know that? Yeah. No, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm an artist since before I could speak, probably. I've always been drawing and painting and what have you. And um, so I do find myself to be sort of a snob in artistic integrity circles. If you remember, we talked about that song, whatever it's called, that I hate so much. Your wife loves so much. <laughs> <laughs> yes, the Lee Greenwood song. Yeah, 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 yeah Lee Greenwood. Yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, the, the trash song. You know the oh, one I mean. Yeah. yeah. So, so I, I get real fussy and snobby. And as you mentioned, my wife, she's great about calling me out on that and saying, <laughs> "Quit being a snob," but it doesn't work. I remain a snob. And so these are shows that. 
I believe, or, or other things that live up to that level of integrity and at the same time have a great faith zone to it. There's a whole slew of movies out now, entire production houses that put out quote-unquote Christian movies. They... 100% of them suck. I mean, <laughs> I was waiting to see where you're going. Yeah. They're not good. Oh, my gosh. They're so bad. There's one called God is for Real, I think, or God is Not Dead, or all these other ones. And they're schlocky, and they're poorly written, and they're poorly acted, and there's low production values. And theologically, they're suspect in a billion different ways. So um, set those aside. Anytime okay. you see something in pop culture, in my opinion, that's the Christian version of fill in the blank, I tend to not care for it. So these are artistic projects that are awesome. So I'm going to go back a couple of years to the show, The Good Place. The Good Place. Oh, I love that show. If you all watch that, my goodness, it's so good. And of course, it's not like biblically accurate. It doesn't intend to be. But it just is a flight of fancy on these thoughts that are so deep and meaningful. What does it mean to be a good person? And how does the universe work? And what is the nature of ethics and morals? Just gorgeous thoughts that bring you deep, deep into the history of philosophy and fart jokes at the same time, right? And how they walk that tightrope is is insane that they have that much talent. So great, great writing. Gosh, it's been like a little while since I've watched it. Otherwise, yeah. I'd, be, I'd be able to give you more commentary on it. It's, it's, it's so good. Fresh. It's definitely worth a rewatch if, if you've watched it before. Um, I bought several of the books they reference on the show because some of them I had read in seminary. And then some others, of those philosopher books? Yeah, they, they get the into TV Kierkegaard a lot. And oh, we were heavy on Kierkegaard in seminary. I don't know if yours was the same. but That's um, much. Yeah, so... Uh, <laughs> And then, but then a few of them I was like blown away by, and I didn't know it. And I bought a few of the books, and they are a slog, man. They're hard to get through, but they're really good. Yeah. Um, but but you guys want to jump in? I have a, I, I brought a list on a post-it, but if you want to throw anything out there that you would recommend out uh, there. Well, I'm in love with Ted Lasso. Yes, that was on my post-it also. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think I think Ted Lasso is like a, a, a pastoral care ninja. Yes. Right. The way that he cares about everyone around him, not just mm-hmm. the soccer. Oh, sorry, we should probably explain Ted Lasso for, real quickly. And also we should say, spoiler alert, if you yeah, haven't yeah. watched it, okay. we're just going to so plow on for it. First of all, yeah. spoiler alert. <laughs> spoiler alert. So, uh, second of all, Ted Lasso is a show on Apple Plus, I think it's called. Apple something. It's really. like hard yeah. to get to unless you own an Apple Plus account or mm-hmm. whatever. Um, about oh, about a, a, an American football coach that became a, a British Football. Football. Football coach. <laughs> and as ridiculous as it is, it is ridiculous, and I get into that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, but you learn about this. Ted Lasso, you just learn about him through every episode. You discover that he's just like this amazing guy uh, who really cares. And I just cares at full stop. Just really cares. And he puts his care for people above the team goal of winning games. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he, he, his philosophy is that if, if, if the locker room is healthy... If people are, are, are good to each other, that will affect the game yeah. and make them play better. Um, and it's just it's it's his we get to we get to experience like his philosophy of the world, uh, and uh, and it's a wonderful ride. Now, why, one of the things I really like about it is I've noticed that a lot of like I'm just gonna say Hollywood here. A lot of Hollywood shows and movies they love to show like dysfunction right. in relationships. Yeah, like, it's almost like it's the drama, or mm-hmm. you know, it's and it's amazing for them to. Just show how horrible people can be to each other. And I think they believe that that's what 
sells. Mm-hmm. And what, what I hope is that Ted Lasso proves that you can have shows where people are beautiful with each other, right? right. It's not, it's not right. easy, mm-hmm. but um, and that people like to watch that too. And and it's and it's not being kind to each other without a cost. Like you learn that all of these yeah. characters have real I mean the spoiler here like Ted Lasso at first you think he's just Mr. Sunshine but it turns out he's going through a very painful divorce and he has a panic attack who divorced that guy right yeah crazy (laughs) unresolved (laughs) yeah yeah, really that um, scene where he has the panic attack outside the nightclub I thought was acted so wonderfully and you think you realize oh he's not He's not good to other people because his own life is just perfect. He's got the pain that everyone else has, and yet he turns that into an energy of love and healing for those around him. Yeah. As opposed to like some of those Hallmark shows like you referenced where it's just kind of like, hey, everyone's good. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> I, I guess uh, if you want a master class on like pastoral care, like a non-clergy sort of mm-hmm. environment, I think t- Ted Lasso is like, the perfect thing to watch. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I'll jump off pastoral care for a second before I get to the actual one because it's going back a little bit. But I mean, I would argue the same thing happens on Call the Midwife. So like, I watched that show and how like these nurses and. Anglican nuns who are birthing all these children in London mm. sort of care for their community and that's also been my argument with that of like if you want to see how to like take care of your neighborhood or take care of your community that's a great example of how they're like they get involved in people's lives they go to them they're living among them like all mm. these things are like present in that show um, so maybe those two things if you're going to teach a class out there hint hint seminary professors like <laughs> maybe just show Ted Lasso in that I'm going to have to like nice. choir out a few words in uh, Ted Lasso yeah, that's Especially right yeah. Roy Kent's on the screen. But, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> but the thing that's been going through my mind lately is uh, John Baptiste's new record. We, yes, we are. Is like it's uh, a spiritual experience. So John uh, Baptiste is the band leader on the Late Show with Stephen Colbert. Okay, yeah. but his new record We Are is very much about community and how we move forward through this moment and what it means to have joy. Yeah, like it's it's a beautiful, beautiful record. So that's one thing I've been thinking about. I haven't spent as much time with it as I wanted to because like most things, I bought it on mm-hmm. vinyl and then I disappeared out of town for a few weeks I and like, I can't on, on vinyl really. Yeah. <laughs> like most things, I bought them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've kind of gone back to buying a lot of vinyl. So, but it's you know. It's, there's a lack of portability, so but it's a beautiful record that speaks to so many great things. I feel mm-hmm. like he's really. I mean, through the pandemic, I felt a little bit like John Baptiste was pastoring me in a weird way. Mm-hmm. So like I would watch Colbert, which is great and on another level. But they do these little five minute segments with him, and it's a little yeah. bit like Ted Lasso, where there's just this this effervescent joy and positivity. That mm-hmm. by the end mm-hmm. of that little bit where they're talking with him, I would feel like, oh. Oh, I got to speak to my like little spiritual director <laughs> um, and the record just kind of picks up where that that started during the and, and the record is, is like how is it like organized um a little random like my yeah. wife was like this is not the normal record for you because I usually listen to more like guitar driven Americana rock stuff but so it's very much um kind of jazz and funk and kind of soul inspired uh-huh. and it's a little um, like sonically it's a little uneven like but mm-hmm. like in a good way it's almost like you're walking through the neighborhood and you're hearing different things that people are playing mm-hmm. randomly um, but it's organized kind of taking you through there's there's some stuff in there about journey of like moving through into adulthood from being a child there's things in there just about kind of the communal nature of things and how we how we tell story and how we are positive. He kind of dedicates it to like, I don't I remember exactly like poets and dreamers and storytellers and those type of things is like the dedication to the record. And I think it's his effort to like tell a different story in the middle of a really difficult time. 
That's wow. That's powerful. Yeah. yeah. It is prophetic in that way, actually. Yeah. Well, Matt, yeah, what's on your list? Um, well, going off of music there, the Avett Brothers are one of my favorite bands. They're listed, I think, as Americana. Um, you know, you talked about the Jean-Baptiste one where he is um, sonically all over the place. As Speaking as someone with ADHD, I love that. It keeps me interested. If it's the same thing every every track, I get bored. So the Avid Brothers can turn on like a heavy metal side, but they're really more folksy sounding. They have a recent one called The Third Gleam, which is very even. It's the same thing all the way through, so that kind of leaves me behind. But they have a few songs over the course of their career that, to pick up on your word prophetic, um, that simply are that. So there's a song called Murder in the City. On their most recent one, they had one called We America. Americans, which talks about how do we love our country when we recognize the reality of our history being a place built on stolen land by stolen people. Um, now, for anyone, that's a challenging statement, but they are singing it to a NASCAR audience. And so they're, they're North Carolina boys from the South that sing gospel hymns in the midst of their concerts. And they're saying to them, how do we love America when it's built on stolen land with stolen people? And they get they get some looks of shock from some of their audience. So they're, they're ones to watch for people who, uh, who bring a certain level of theological content. I think it's their grandfather has some theological books that he wrote. And uh, I think their dad was an old-timey gospel singer as well. So, so they've got this history that comes behind them, and then now they're singing it to a broader audience with, I would say, a, probably a broader theological worldview as well. Wow. Super cool. Yeah. And... To take it to a less serious side, I just recently watched Bill and Ted Face the Music, the third and final. I loved it. It was so good. And it had a little bit of that Ted Lasso vibe of bringing positivity even in the midst of uh, maybe a personal crisis and darkness. But it maintained the goofiness of the Bill and Ted movies. But at the same time, had a real message of beauty and hope and I won't spoil it but there's a turn in expectations during the final climax of the movie which was absolutely brilliant and loving and the correct message for this time in our history so um, I would say there are two two turns <laughs> in that final climax so I don't want to spoil the movie I'm well, like watching like, oh I found turn one that's right yeah <laughs> Please do. Yeah, it's really good. And they're both, uh, so in the midst of all the goofiness of, uh, you know, Bill and Ted just saying, excellent. There's also these two moments of saying, this is how we heal our world. So very, very well done. All right. Anyone else? Anything else? Anyone else's list? All right, those are recommendations for now. I'm sure we'll have a lot more later on if we keep doing this theology segment like this. Oh, I also recommend bacon wrapped dates. Wrap I'm making those tomorrow, so y'all come on by my house. All right. <laughs> <laughs> well, bacon isn't, isn't, isn't uh, terribly kosher um, for those listeners who, who keep kosher. Uh, but sounds... You can you can use turkey bacon. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Sounds good. Delicious. Uh, okay. Well, I think that concludes our uh, our podcast. I want to talk a little bit about next month. Uh, Matt, because it's a big month for me. Yes. I have the high holidays coming up, mm-hmm. uh, but I also have a baby due. Woohoo! Yeah, yeah, towards the end of September. So it's going to be very busy. So yes. I want to try something uh, with the Vines Us for an episode. We might do something 
shorter. I have a thought maybe of like maybe we read our favorite sermon, something something kind of fun like that. We'll do a mini sode. Yeah. Do we? Do you think we have enough of a listener base to ask people to send questions, and we can do a Q and A time? Yeah, I mean that's a great idea. We should only have an email, official email. <laughs> well, we know two of the listeners are our moms, so <laughs> so moms send us in questions. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or send questions to our moms. They'll send to us. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, but you know, my thought would be. We could even have more. We have a couple episodes next next month of really short ones. But yeah. Like I, I wouldn't mind reading. You know, we can record some of our best sermons or or record something that's really important. I, I don't know. Whatever it is, we'll figure something. I, I apologize. Yeah. But next month might be a bit of a different. Don't format. apologize. What? <laughs> Both of those reasons are good. But yeah. but I mean, I, a new life on Earth is pretty important. Yeah. You know. <laughs> it's really it's pretty great. Uh, so. Yeah, all right. Well, uh, we've got to offer some thank yous before, before we take off. And uh, So, first of all, thank you for James Brown for that amazing logo you created for us. Uh, and the Mitra Brothers for their intro and outro songs and also all their editing help. Uh, and Joel for coming by and, mm-hmm. and being yeah, a, a guest host for us. is really amazing. Uh, and, uh, yeah, and if you want to see us in action, uh, we're kind of still online thanks to sort of COVID being the way that it is. So you can find us on our new YouTube channel Ooh. at, uh, it's, uh, uh, Alaska Judaism Media is our podcast, is our YouTube channel saying Alaska Judaism Media. You can find us there if you want to. Um, Matt, how can we see you in action? Uh, we are still online largely. We do have a small group gathering with us in person, um, but that's, you know, who knows where Delta will take us. We might shut that down again. But Google First Presbyterian Church of Anchorage, Alaska, because there's also an Anchorage, Kentucky, um, and you'll find us. We are at 10 a.m. now, but we switch to 11 a.m. pretty soon. Okay. And then Joel has his podcast, The Anchored City. Uh, I recommend you take a look there. I mean, your, your episode, uh, what was it? Uh, you have so many good ones on there. Um, I had, uh, my favorite one it has to be The Russian Jack episode. Uh, so crazy to understand why. So you want to learn why Russian Jack is called Russian Jack, uh, listen to The Anchored City, uh, Joel's podcast. All right, take care, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye.